The promise of the Spirit. Paul spoke about it. The Old Testament spoke about it. Why is it so important? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to our thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. We're going to look at some fascinating scriptures and perhaps raise some questions for you that you have not thought about previously. If you have a Jewish-related question for me, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. And even though it's thoroughly Jewish Thursday, if you were trying to get in yesterday with a call and weren't able to speak with my guest or raise concerns about Christ alignment or have a question for me. We will take some calls about that, but only towards the beginning of the show, 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, <clears throat> I promised at the end of yesterday's show that I would weigh in with a few more thoughts at the beginning of this show. So let me tell you why yesterday's show happened, and let me first make a larger statement. It is not my job, it is not my role, it is not my calling to police everything that happens in the church or everything that happens in the charismatic church. It is the role of no human being on the planet to be God's policeman for the entire church, and that one person is right, and they're going to fix and correct everything else. There's a ton of stuff that I do that is corrective, and it is part of our ministry as leaders and shepherds in the body to correct and rebuke and teach, instruct, and edify. So there are many things I've written that are corrective. There are whole books that I've written that are corrective. There are whole broadcasts I've done that are corrective. Behind the scenes, I'm often reaching out. But it is things that I get burdened about by the Lord. It is things that I see happening in wide scale through the body. Uh, there, are, there are issues that <clears throat> are particularly grievous that we deal with. But even in that respect, we can't do everything. So we have to have a specific calling and, and follow the Lord's leading and do what we're supposed to do. So if someone says, well, what about this thing over here? And it's something I never heard about, people I never heard about, once you look into it, if from what I can tell, it's not wide, widespread, it's not mainstream, it's not like, say, hyper-grace that became very much widespread, it's, it's not like certain uh, common uh, charismatic abuses, say, with a, with a hyper-prosperity, carnal prosperity message that's widespread, these things I've dealt with, I've written about, I've spoken about specifically in detail for, for many, many years as, as they've come up, all right? So it's just some, something out there, it, it maybe with three people or 3,000 or 50,000 somewhere, but it's very fringe in terms of the overall. I, unless I feel burdened to look into it, I'm, I'm not going to. And you have to understand, almost every day, People are, and sometimes multiple, multiple, multiple times a day. Dr. Moore, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Do you agree with this? What about this? When are you going to correct this? When are you going to say something about this? Now, I, I appreciate people asking, but understand, if I responded to those requests, I'm just being totally candid with you. If I responded to, please watch this video and comment. Please read this article and comment. Please check out this book and comment. If I did that, and you wrote to me today saying, Dr. Brown, give me your impressions on this video, my honest response would be, Absolutely, you're on the list, and I will get you in about 40 years. You understand, it is completely impossible to look at everything that I'm asked to, nor is it my calling 
to be the one to say, that's good, that's not good, right, wrong, there, okay. In point of fact, if I did that, I'd be dealing with cessationists, with non-charismatics day and night because of denial of gifts of the Spirit and, and errors in their teaching. And that's all I'd be, be focused on that day and night. All right, so when I heard about Christ alignment, it was good, bad, the way it was presented was very bad, but I also know that the hypercritics can't be trusted, that, that they will post things that are years old where people don't even practice or have since repudiated, or they'll take things out of context. So I, I give no credence to the hypercritics, okay? And, and nor am I going to go on a rabbit trail and prove my orthodox. Okay, you got to renounce it. Dr. Brown, renounce it. Brown, renounce this one. Unless you renounce this one, we don't. Well, what kind of nonsense is that? They're going to prove my orthodoxy by now going through the list of your latest people that you disagree with, whatever, okay? In any case, I'm not going to play that game. It's a waste of time, and it's not going to minister to those that are hungry and thirsty that we're called to touch and help and serve through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. So anyway, I heard about the group, didn't know what they were doing, and just said, hey, I don't know. I'm not following it. I'm not looking into it. I, I read very little. I said it may be some creative way to do outreach or it may be totally bad, okay? The way it was being presented, it was presented as a creative way to do outreach and, and the way others presented it and looking at it raised grave concerns. That was it. End of subject. Didn't bring it up again. Didn't pursue it. All right. I'm pursuing a ton of other things, day and night. So then, then a couple weeks ago, question came up again. And it was suggested to me by a team member, hey, why don't you just take that one from Facebook? So I responded to it the same way. What I've heard is a creative way outreach could be. Is it, is it something really bad? Stay away from Could be. I don't know. Haven't looked into it. You know, the hypercritics, they put out all kinds of videos. I don't follow them. I don't follow them. I don't listen to them. And when I've seen them slander, when I've seen them bear false witness, when I've seen them misrepresent, when I've seen them mock Things of the Spirit, beautiful things of the Spirit, when I've, when I've seen them damned to hell, men and women of God, or mock them after their deaths, like, sorry, that's, I pray for you. I pray for you to really encounter the goodness of the Lord and embrace the full truth of his word, but not going to play your game. In any case, in any case. So after I made those comments, we were then contacted by Ken and Jenny Hodge from Christ Alignment, and Jenny offered to come on the show, or Ken and Jenny come on the show, to explain their views. I said, great. So I went into it saying, let's find out what they believe and who they are. All right. That was my mentality. And before, before the show, when I saw that one of the hypercritics had linked me in Facebook and uh, copied me, I gave a personal note. I hope you call. All right. So the door was wide open and I kept giving the invitation through the show, posted on social media, inviting the hypercritics to call. All right. Constructive criticism is wonderful, and we can have our differences within the body. The hypercritical attitude spirit is destructive and does far more harm than it does good. Okay, And candidly, I'm far more concerned about that widespread hypercriticism that we see throughout the church than an aberrant stream here, an aberrant stream there, affecting limited numbers of people. Okay, so I had Jenny on. Here's what concerned me. I never heard a clear gospel presentation. I asked a number of times. I was told we preach just what others preach in the Bible and you have to renounce to the spirit guides and power. But I, at, at no point did I hear a clear gospel presentation. I asked for it several times right to the end of the show. Basically, I never heard it. That concerned me. That concerned many viewers and listeners to me for good reason. All right. I posted afterwards. I don't doubt her sincerity. 
In other words, I take people at their word. I even, I even believe that, that many hypercritics are sincere, okay? Take people at their word, all right? And I believe she wants to lead people to Jesus. I, that's what I surmised hearing what she does and why they do what they do. But I was deeply concerned about the, the lack of a clear gospel message. I got no clear answer to, to the, the use of cards, why those are used. So I, I, I don't endorse that. I don't agree with that. The idea of doing readings, don't, don't endorse that, don't agree with that. And in addition to that, uh, after the show, one of my colleagues said, hey, watch this video. This is the first time I watched any of the critics' videos. And it showed her using stones. And Well, she contacted me today and said, that was old. We don't do that. Okay, fine. So they, they don't use stones. But the way they do things, I had grave concerns about. The idea of getting constant third heaven revelation and then people having Jesus appear to them raised major questions to me whether it's really Jesus appearing to them. And there was a terrible misuse of, of Joseph talking about how he can use divination as if we could use divination. And I mentioned that on the show. So I feel the same way. I don't doubt their sincerity and that they want to lead people to Jesus, but I'm gravely concerned as to whether they're preaching a clear gospel message. I have many, many questions about Jesus just appearing to people like this at these New Age festivals. And I believe Jesus does appear to people today. I I believe that. And I believe Muslims and others are having dreams and visions. And I believe he's visiting New Ages. I absolutely believe that. All right. But I have grave concerns about the lack of gospel message, clear message that's presented. I have grave concerns about some of the methodology. I don't endorse it. I don't agree with it. So what's the critics take on the show? I've just been sent headlines. Brown endorses which or Brown believes which is that's that that's why you really don't want to give the time of the day to the hypercritics, the way they're going to represent things, misrepresent things. And of course, they know for sure that this is a witch going to hell. So they, they'll answer to God for that, not to me, because I'm not the person's savior either way. <clears throat> During the show, people were posting comments. And, and this is what concerned me. I have no, no issue whatsoever for people having all kinds of, of concerns and issues. Not, no, I have concerns and issues, okay? And I, inviting Jenny on the show was not, uh, I said at the beginning, I'm not here to defend or to accuse. That's why I took the whole show, asked as many questions as I could, and gave as much opportunity to things to be presented clearly. And what I'd encourage Jenny and Christ Alignment to do, if you feel that you were misrepresented, even though I gave ample time, I would encourage you to put out a really clear statement of what you believe the gospel is. I'd encourage you to do that. Put out a crystal clear statement. This is what we preach. This is what we believe. If someone comes under our tent, they may not hear this, you know, the first moment we open our mouths, but if they're open, this is the message they will hear. Don't quote others. Don't just put out a statement of faith, but this is what we tell them. This is who we tell them Jesus is. This is what we tell them why he died. This is what we tell them about his resurrection. This is what we tell them about what it means to be a disciple and repent of sin. Lay it out clearly, all right? Lay it out clearly and truthfully. This is what people will actually hear, all right? I never heard that yesterday. Therefore, I had major concerns. And again, those who raise major concerns over that, perfectly fine. Those who say we question whether she's really preaching the gospel or not, I understand why. I understand why. Based on that, okay? Not only so, though, but people were posting things that were so outrageously false, that were so grievous, that that concerns me even more, okay? Ah, yeah, here we go. Uh, 
Dolphin Pen. Yeah, brands me an apologist for the devil. I really pray for these guys. May, may the Lord have mercy on them. May the Lord use them for good and bring them to repentance for denying Scripture and sinning against the Spirit. May the Lord be gracious to them. I'm not mad at them, but I agree. And I have reached out behind the scenes to different leaders in these different organizations. Of, of course, I've done it many times. Oh, by the way, before I get back to some of the nonsense that was posted, friends, and then we get into the, today's subject about the promise of the Spirit and Scripture, uh, I want to credit Justin Peters. We've had our differences publicly, but he emailed me the other day with a statement he had heard from someone alleging I had said certain things, and he said, is it true? I just want to know. And I said, no, completely misrepresented. So I want to commend him for reaching out to me privately to confirm something. That's the way we should do it. And then if we have our differences afterwards, then we can express them publicly. All right, be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Jewish Thursday. Hey, friends, we've just got a handful of seats left on our May tour. And we're in February now, late February. So if you're going to Israel with us, you've got to sign up now. Just a handful of seats left for the tour of a lifetime. Go to my website now, askdrbrown.org, and then you'll see it right on the homepage. Join us now. Real important if you're coming, got to get your, your funds in so we can be together. An amazing, amazing trip. All right, it is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. We're going to open up the Jewish scriptures in a moment. We're going to open up the scriptures in a moment. And we're going to get to some calls as well, so please be patient. But here, in real time, I want to illustrate for you why I ignore the hypercritics and why I pray for their repentance. I was just sent this link on Facebook, Pulpit and Pen. Uh, Jordan Hall says this, Dr. Brown, you defended Hillsong vehemently in the wake of their inclusion of of gay choir directors in New York. You never retracted your support of them. You defended Hillsong in their lasciviousness in their lascivious Christmas strip show. You defended Kenneth Copeland's private jets. You defended Carl Lentz after making pro-abortion comments on Oprah. You claimed Bethel had nothing to do with grave sucking and defended Bill Johnson when it was his wife sucking the graves. Photos prove it and never retracted your defense of them. You're an apologist for Satan, sir. So, Jordan, I, I forgive you for slandering me, and I forgive you for labeling me in a, in a way that really displeases the Lord and makes a mockery of your own walk with the Lord. So I, I forgive you publicly. But now I'm going to set the record straight and correct you publicly, as I've done privately, only to get your mocking, attacking responses when I reach out graciously. And yes, feel free to release the full context of our emails back and forth. With nothing added out, feel free. Let the world read it. Let them see how I've sought to reach out in times past. In any case, no, I didn't defend Hillsong vehemently. I questioned what actually happened. I challenged Hillsong on their views. And when Hillsong put out a public statement saying that they did not affirm homosexual practice, I commended them for it. Ask Brian Houston if he looks at me as an apologist of Hillsong or a critic of Hillsong. 
Ask Brian Houston if he looks at me as an advocate or a thorn in the flesh, okay? I challenged what happened. I looked into it. I made it very clear that I was being misrepresented in my position, told you privately to correct things. You didn't, okay? So read. here's the deal. Read everything I wrote about it. When Hillsong came out with a positive statement, I then commended them for that. And when I asked Hillstone directly, they said, yes, people were involved, but the way it was being put forward was misrepresented. So I gave their position as well, all right, based on what they said. That's number one. Number two, <sighs> I did not defend their, quote, lascivious Christmas description. It wasn't a strip show, okay? They didn't get naked, all right? I did not defend it. I wrote against it. I wrote against it. I raised grave concerns about the worldliness of it. All right, that's, that's a fact. That is a blatant lie, misrepresentation. I defended Kenneth Copeland's private jets. No, I didn't. I never did. I speak against the carnal prosperity message and have for decades unwaveringly. I said sometimes it can be in a ministry's best interest to have a private jet. I have friends of mine with large ministries that brought jets that were used jets that were several hundred thousand dollars, not millions, and that were shared with others and things like that. And it was actually good stewardship because of their travel and business schedule. I never defended Kenneth Copeland's private jets. And when Creflo Dollar was raising money for his jet, I said, I wrote an article why Creflo's not getting any of my dollars. Okay? Again, blatant misrepresentation. You defended Carl Lentz after making pro-abortion comments on Oprah. I'm not sure if it was Oprah or another show, I reached out to Carl directly and urged him to post a statement on his view of abortion. I did not like the way that he said things and felt that it was weak. I reached out to him. I spoke with him directly. He affirmed to me how much he opposes abortion and wants to be a voice for pro-life. I urged him to put out a statement to that effect, which he did. So it was a, I, I absolutely hate it. The way he put it on the show felt it was weak and wrong and misleading. And therefore, I reached out to him, and he made a public statement saying what he did believe. So again, every line here misrepresented. You claim Bethel had nothing to do with grave sucking and defended Bill Johnson when it was his wife sucking the grave's photos. Prove it. Okay. I didn't defend them. The whole grave sucking, grave soaking thing is ridiculous. It's, it's unbiblical and stupid, period. And there were some people from Bethel involved about, in it. And when Bill Johnson heard about it, he publicly repudiated it, as did Chris Valentin. All right, so that is not their policy. What happened with his wife or not, I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm not defending it. I'm simply saying Bill Johnson said we don't practice it. It's wrong. Yes, some people did it. When they found out, they repudiated it. All right? And, and <clears throat> it's that simple. So every line there is false. Every line there is a misleading lie. Now, in God's sight, what's a greater concern? What's a greater concern? Bearing false witness, stirring up dissension, misrepresenting leaders, slandering leaders, okay? Which is a, a greater concern in God's sight? For someone doing this with whatever following they have, or for someone in using aberrant practices to try to reach new agers with a few thousand people involved? Oh, I have grave concerns, don't endorse that, don't agree with that. But what's the bigger concern, the bigger issue here? So during the show yesterday, there was one gal, I'm, I'm not going to mention it, I'm not going to po po put these up because I don't want to embarrass her, all right? 
But she kept posting, well, you've, you've had them on your show, you know, the, these people in Christ Alliance, you've had them on your show before, and now you had them on again a year later. False? I noticed my assistant, Dylan, corrected her. It's not true. Well, why do you keep defending them? You defended them a year ago. Never defended them? Well, here's video proof. The video proved the opposite. So posting lie after lie after lie after lie. I mean, I'm looking here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, that's like 12 posts, most of which were blatant lies until the person got blocked because we're just not going to let our social media be the platform for posting continual lies. Here, look, look at this. I... I see this on Twitter. It's, it's the guy's account or the person's account. It's called, I'm watching you. All right? Are you ready for this? This was yesterday. I will stay very far from you as you and your wife are very known as false, very well known as false preachers. Your wife liked lying in tombstones. So I guess he thought I was Bill Johnson and my wife Nancy was Benny Johnson. This is the kind of nonsense that's out there day and night. Now, I want to present something to you. There is a, a famine. There is a drought. People are dying of thirst. But there is a, a, a series of warehouses with hundreds of thousands of cartons containing millions of bottles of water. And that water is life-giving and life-changing and can save the lives of tens of millions of people. All right? But people have it under lock and key and say it doesn't exist. No one can have it. All right. Now, a thousand miles away, there is a tiny little stream that a few hundred people can drink from. But the water there is poisoned. All right. Is that a concern? Yes. Should I be concerned about those few hundred people and warn them about that water? Yes. But shouldn't the bigger concern, shouldn't the greater concern be this, that that healthy, life-giving water is being held up, locked up, so that the people that could drink from it cannot, and its existence is being denied. Isn't that the greater concern, that tens of millions have the life-giving water withheld from them? The answer, obviously, yes. That's why I'm far more concerned with the damage being done by the hypercritics mocking the things of the Spirit, denying the things of the Spirit, taking the most extreme example and trying to make that normative, denying what Scripture plainly says about the Holy Spirit, denying the Spirit's glorious work all over the planet today, which is touching hundreds and hundreds of millions of people to the glory of God, to the glory of God, and in accordance with the Word of God. I'm far more concerned with that than a ministry that may be reaching a few thousand people with aberrant practices or, or a message that's lacking. I'm concerned about that. I'll, I'll raise that notion. But the bigger issue is the life-giving waters that are being withheld from others. And let me ask you a question. If you read through the New Testament, which has greater emphasis? Which has greater emphasis in the New Testament? The importance of discernment and the importance of love. Is discernment important? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what's even more important? Love. Now, love is not undiscerning. Love is not untruthful. But what is more important in the sight of God? Discernment or love? Throughout the New Testament, we're called love one another, love one another. We're called to do it over and over and over. This is the new commandment. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. We're called to preserve unity. We're called to follow truth and to speak the truth in love. 
And what I see, it is so tragic, it is so damaging, it is so harmful, it is so polluting, is false reports are spread. This is not based on love. This is based on, well, God knows what it's based on. Let him be the judge. But you can, <clears throat> you can be as sharp as the Pharisees were and quoting their traditions and knowing Scripture and yet miss the heart of the gospel. And by the way, one reason that I'm especially sensitive to this is because late 70s, early 80s, I, I was going in the way of hypercriticism myself and denying the things of the Spirit for today and even mocking, questioning many things that God was doing. God had to humble me and touch me afresh with the Spirit because of what's written in the Word. All right, friends, I've made myself as clear as I can, and we move on. We're going to look into the Word, the promise of the Spirit. We're going to take your Jewish-related calls. Stay with us. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Hey, all our friends in New Zealand and Australia heading your way, God willing, this weekend, different meetings in different city, one day in New Zealand and what, five days in Australia. So a lot of travel back and forth. Can't wait to be with you. We've got some special programming here in the line of fire. And my good friend, Dr. Alex McFarland, will be sitting in as guest host for some of the days next week. You will love the show. So let's take a look in Galatians chapter 3. Then we'll get to your calls, 866-34-TRUTH. Galatians 3 Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, is before your eyes that Jesus the Messiah was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? As it reads in the TLV, I want to find out just one thing from you. Did you receive the Ruach by deeds based on Torah or by hearing based on trust? So notice that Paul points to their receiving of the Spirit as something that was very important in their lives, something notable, something markable. So I ask every follower of Jesus today, can you point to when you receive the Spirit, the importance of receiving the Spirit, the importance of the Spirit's work in your life today as something that major, that memorable? Now, as we go down in Galatians 3, Paul is, says this, uh, verse 13, Galatians 3.13, Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order, so he, he died for us, why? In order that through Messiah Yeshua, through Jesus the Messiah, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So look at this we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is big. In Paul's mind, this is big. This is part of the Abrahamic blessing, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is an Abrahamic blessing promise. As the whole world is blessed, we receive the Spirit. Now, 
John chapter 7, all right, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, and it ended with, you'd have these daily water processions, and it was this majestic thing, so the image of water, living water, is, is there in front of the people, and passages like Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 47 would be read about living water. So then, John chapter 7, let's go down to the end of that chapter and see what it says in verse 37. John seven thirty-seven says this, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Yeshua stood up and cried out loudly, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who trusted in him were going to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, since Yeshua was not yet glorified. So there was going to be something different for believers on the other side of the cross than believers before that. Yes, the Holy Spirit worked through the prophets. Yes, the Holy Spirit instructed David. Yes, the Holy Spirit worked among the people of Israel. Yes, the Holy Spirit's presence was manifest in ancient Israel. But there was going to be a giving of the Spirit that would be such that it would be definite and clear and glorious. And then if you go to back to the Hebrew Bible, back to the Hebrew Scriptures, do you remember when Moses was overwhelmed with the burden of caring for all Israel? And God told him in Numbers, the 11th chapter, that he would take the spirit from him and share it with the 70 elders. And as commentators have pointed out, it's like one candle lights all the others without diminishing its own light. So the spirit remained on Moses, but now the spirit was also given to the 70 elders. But two of them, Eldad and Medad, did not follow the directives. They were supposed to be out in one location. Instead, they were back in the camp and they were prophesying. And Joshua hears about it with his zeal says, Moses, should I shut them up? Because they're prophesying and they're not supposed to be doing it there. And Moses said, you're upset for me? He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that he'd pour out his spirit on all of them. Even though that was just a a desire Moses expressed, it it becomes a promise. It becomes a hope that that Joel, the prophet, says in Joel 2.28 or in Hebrews 3.1 that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh And that's why this promise of the Spirit is now realized in Acts 2. It is a promise for the entire age. In fact, I'll do a whole teaching on that within the next, oh, 10 days. I'll do a whole teaching on what the Scripture says about these things. But just notice the promise of the Spirit, the blessing of the Spirit. It it is absolutely crucial, important. It is something promised. It is something wonderful, all right? And in Acts 19, Paul asked the believers he meets in Ephesus, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? I want to encourage you that there is a a richness to the Spirit's presence and power and gifts that many of us have not really experienced. But by the Word of God, it is something promised to us. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, I just want to jump right in here and go to Kendra in Toronto. Hey, Kendra, what's up? Hi, um, my name is Kendra. I'm sitting here with my husband, Fadi. Um, I'm 39 weeks pregnant right now, and um, they told us yesterday that there was no heartbeat for our baby. Um, we, We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that God still works miracles today. And um, and we just wanted to call and ask for prayer. We know there's a lot of spirit-filled believers who listen to your show, and we just want as many people as possible praying for us um, and and for our daughter. Her name is Abigail Hope. 
God. All right, Kendra, um, thank you for calling in. And, boy, 29 weeks. Uh, let's let's pray right now. 39. 39. Yeah. She's one week away from her due date. Oh, 30, 39 weeks. Oh, my. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's pray right now. Father, we lift this baby up to you, and we ask you for life. We ask you for a miracle. You told us to ask. You told us to, to pray. You told us that you are good and that your mercy is over all your works. You said the prayer of faith will make the sick well. You said that the works that Jesus did, we could do by your spirit. So, God, we pray for life in this baby right now, for a beating heart, for Abigail Hope, for a beating heart now, for restoration for life. Lord, we will love you and trust you no matter what. We will love you and trust you and praise you no matter what. But as your children... Lord, you feel the, the pain of this mother right now. How do you feel as the Heavenly Father? Work a miracle right now. Lord, we ask for this heart to begin to beat, restore, make whole without any damage to this child. Work a miracle. We're asking for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Hey, Kendra, listen, uh, shoot a note to our website, all right? Shoot a note to our website. Let us know how things go. And everyone listening, watching, pray. Just pray right now as the Lord burdens you. Thank you. Thank you for calling in, Kendra. Uh, Look, friends, we don't normally do this. And as important as prayer requests are, this is not just a show of of people calling in and praying. But uh, as soon as I saw this, I thought we we need to take this call immediately. And and I understand that everyone is healed. I just, just, my cell phone today uh, dear friends of ours just got a note of uh, miscarried. You know, the baby baby died. We understand this. We understand this pain and suffering in this world, and we're going to glorify the Lord and worship him anyway. But I tell you what, if that's that's my baby, I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying for a miracle in, until in, in, until it's too late. But I'm, I'm going to ask God for, for, interve- for intervention and mercy. So you pray as the Holy Spirit leads you out there. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And, and friends, you know, this just reminds us prayer of faith or gifts of the spirit or healing it's not abstract stuff this is 39 weeks i can't imagine i can't imagine what it's like to be pregnant i'm a man can't imagine what it's like to feel that baby moving and then it's not moving a, a week before due date so uh, many of you moms you know how to pray right now thank you all right eight six six three four truth uh, let's go to Josh in Spokane, Washington. Thanks so much for holding, Josh. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure to pray. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Brown, my question is um, about the... Re- uh, well, I'll just say it. What was the relationship in terms of religious and spiritual authority between the Sanhedrin and the Temple and the broader Jewish people of the first centuries B.C. and A.D.? Yeah, so as far as the development of the priesthood, the temple, the Sanhedrin, by the time Mm -hmm. you get into the days of Jesus and the later Second Temple period, the Sanhedrin was largely dominated by Sadducees. It was divided. We we see that later in the book of Acts, for example, Acts, the 23rd chapter. But it was largely uh, led by the Sanhedrin, and therefore the high priest would have a prominent role. The Sadducees... Uh, had the priesthood, and the Sadducees were temple-based. 
So the great issue with them was temple authority and then the larger governance of, of the people and the settling of religious disputes and things like that. The Pharisees were not temple-based, and this is what ended up prevailing with the destruction of the temple. So the Pharisees developed the idea of synagogues, so that you'd have these places to read the scriptures and pray, and you'd go to the temple. The temple was still considered sacred by the Pharisees, but the religion was somewhat decentralized. And then, of course, the Pharisees claimed to have traditions that went back to the elders and ultimately that, that said went all the way back to Moses and things like that. So uh, bottom line is that the Sanhedrin, very much in, in harmony with a temple-based, Jerusalem-based authority, and then with the destruction of the temple, then there has to be kind of a broader restructuring of, of Sanhedrin, and, then, and ultimately it ceases to exist but the Pharisees mm-hmm. then become the primary leaders of the people, and it's not the high priest so much because there's not a functioning temple. The high priest uh, is, is much less important now over time, and it's now the Pharisaical religion which becomes rabbinic Judaism uh, over the centuries. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah, and, and one other thing, Josh, there are Jewish scholars, even my friend Rabbi Shmuley, as we've debated that will say that the high priest was corrupt or the high priest was a, was a lackey of Rome or something like that. So they would feel that that's a legitimate criticism, and therefore some of the New Testament critique of the high priest they wouldn't necessarily disagree with, but they would disagree with the oh. critique of the Pharisees and things like that. But that the, that the high priest was, was in collusion with Rome or, or that he was, he was not the spiritual religious authority he was supposed to be because of compromise, there are many who would see it that way. It became much more of a power struggle. Uh, in, in fact, during the Hasmonean dynasty, the, the high priest also functioned as the king. So, yeah, things did change. All right, thank you, sir, for your question. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. If I can wipe the slate clean and be someone I've not been, maybe I'll find God there. Beautiful song. Didn't know it was Thoroughly Jewish Thursday song, but beautiful song. I love, love those lyrics I just heard. Um, all right. In a little over 40 minutes, like 42 minutes, we'll be right back here on YouTube. Ask Dr. Brown, ASK Dear Brown on YouTube, doing our weekly exclusive YouTube chat. So you don't want to miss that. We'll be doing that beginning 4.30 Eastern Standard Time. And many of you who have questions, issues you didn't get to call in about or it's, you're not able to call in, we'll get to have that discussion. I'll get to as many questions as I can on YouTube. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jesse in West St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Great to be on. Thank you. All right, so my question pertains to Acts. 20, or Acts 9.22. It's a fascinating verse because in it you see that Paul has just gotten saved, and now the first thing he does is start to proclaim the name of Jesus and all that. 
And this was before, I assume, before he really went to his hardcore study of the Bible and had some revelations from Jesus and all that. Um, But in in, uh, Acts 9.22, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, the thing that my, my question pertains to this word proving, because that seems like an absolutely phenomenal statement that, that Paul was able to do something like actually prove that Jesus was a Messiah. And I, I was just wondering if you could speak into that, and because, and, and, you know, so often we think that it takes faith, and it does, but does, it, does this verse imply that there, there is some proof out there? Yes. So first, it's a fascinating thing to wonder what he preached, right? What scripture he used, what arguments he used, especially because he's brand new. So because he had so much of the word in his heart and mind already, certainly memorized massive portions of scripture, God could now begin to illuminate and open things up for him. All right. So that's, uh, that's, that's one thing. And great question as to what it was. And yeah, the Greek does say, uh, proving uh, most all translations. I'm just looking at one after another, say proving. In fact, let me just look at the note in the the NET, you know, showing for certain. But let me address that larger thing. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation, I said, we've proved this. We've, and the some of the professors said, wrong language. Don't use that language. Say instead, demonstrate it. Demonstrate it so that I, I, I demonstrated this point as opposed to I proved it because they said that's, you know, that means it's accepted or, you know, it's going too far. Mm-hmm. So basically what it's saying is this. Obviously, there are people who still didn't believe, right? There were people who heard it and, and didn't believe or mocked the message or rejected it. But what you could say is he gave a clear and certain case that Jesus was the Messiah of Scripture. I've sought yeah. to do that through the decades debating rabbis that, that here, here's one of the, for example— I can say I can prove to you that the gifts of the Spirit are for today based on Scripture. Well, does that mean you're going to accept it, or does that mean I'm going to give a definitive argument for that, and if we follow it logically and scripturally, we'll we'll come to this conclusion? Uh, So that's the way I understand it, that it's it's not that he proved it in a way that no one could argue with. All right, like I just prove here, watch in front of your eyes, here's Jesus or something like that, or hear these verses, and there's no other possible way to interpret it. Rather, uh-huh. he, gave, he gave definitive arguments that Jesus was the Messiah, and they couldn't answer him. And that's right. what we seek to do whenever we preach the gospel or get into apologetics, give definitive arguments based on Scripture that in order to refute, you have to deny the plain sense of Scripture, or you have to translate something differently, or you have to, you know, refuse to think the thing through. That being said, we understand that when it comes to Scripture, many people are going to read things differently, which is why we pray for humility, which is why we pray that people will have ears to hear, which is why we know that the Holy Spirit also has to open up hearts and minds. But thank you. I, I love the question. I appreciate it, Jesse. All right. Yep, sure thing. Eight six six three four truth Let's go to Terry in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Well, hi. Thank you, um, Dr. Brown. I love your books. Um, well, i got a quick question. What was the turning point? After Christ was crucified, what was the turning Because there's a lot of Jewish uh, rabbis that didn't believe that he was the Son of God. 
Uh, obviously, um, they, I mean, that's where they went to the cross part of it. But um, what was the turning point with the Jewish community to no longer sacrifice? Yeah, the turning point. Yeah, the turning point was the destruction of the temple, Terry. That uh huh. I yeah, heard that, that earlier. I was wondering if that was it. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 that simple. That the temple was the place ordained by God where sacrifices were to be offered, and if the temple was destroyed, they could not offer sacrifice. So the question would be, when the temple was destroyed, and now almost two thousand years later has still not been rebuilt. Is it that God right. has withheld that from the Jewish people and said, uh, you're under judgment, you can no longer offer sacrifices, or has he said the old system is done and I provided what the system was pointing towards, namely the Messiah who died for the sins of Israel but and the sins of the world? But in point of fact, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, sacrifices were offered for another 40 years. And, and as long as the uh-huh. temple was standing, when the temple was destroyed, then the sacrifices were no longer offered. So it was simply that at that, that was the ordained place where the sacrifices were to be offered. And in the absence of the temple, it would be sinful to offer up sacrifices to build altars in other places. And therefore, it hasn't been done. It's part of our message to say to the Jewish people, God has provided a better way. God has provided what the temple was looking forward to, sacrifice for sins through the perfect sacrifice of the Messiah. Thank you, sir, for calling. Uh, let's go to Rainey in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Yes, yes sir. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, so I have a question. You'd mentioned the coat already once in the, um, in the hour, so I apologize. But um, I have a very specific question in regards to the lulav. Um, what is the significance of the waving of the lulav during Sukkot? And is there any other festival where there is waving of palm branches or the four kinds? Yeah, so the, the palm branch question comes in, for example, in, in uh, you've got Revelation, the, the seventh chapter. And you, you yes. wonder, is this, is this speaking of tabernacles? And you've got some of, these, right. some of these various species being waved, and this is the harvest, the end-time harvest of the nations— or is it is it hearkening back to rather the triumphal entry? Where is that was that the waving of the palm branches as much as laying these things down to make a path? But if you go to Chabad.org, that's ultra orthodox Jewish organization that they have lots of Q and A in terms of rabbinic tradition because this is a this is later rabbinic tradition. We don't know when it actually began, uh, but uh, it says here each day of the holiday of Sukkot, excluding the Sabbath, we move the four species, so lulav and etrog, so these, mm-hmm. these various um, natural elements here are held up and weighed. Now, again, how ancient is the custom? We don't know, but it's not commanded to do in this specific way in Scripture. Uh, we do it, uh, four species, lulav and etrog, set three times in each of six directions immediately after reciting the blessing. Many do this by extending the four species in each direction, eastward, southward, westward, and northward, then facing east upwards and downwards, according to the Kabbalistic. So this is mystical explanation taught by Rabbi Isaac Luria. So this is like 500 years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. You you extend the species southward, northward, eastward, upward, downward, and westward. After each movement, the lulav and etrog are brought towards the heart. Then you have these various uh, other groups. They do it differently. According to the mystical explanation, south represents kindness, chesed, 
North is discipline or power, gvura. East is harmony or, or glory, tiferet. Up is perseverance, netzach. Down is submission, hod. West is connection, yesod. And you bring the four species toward the heart is communication or malchut, uh, kingdom. It's based basically on Jewish tradition, and some of it is mystical. But there's no scriptural well, I, command I, to do that particular thing. So, I, by the way, Chabad, we're, we're at it back and forth. In other words, I'm trying to win them to the Lord. They're telling me I'm wrong. But if you want to find out about traditional Jewish belief, this explains it. Well, I thought it was in Deuteronomy where it, it goes through explaining the rams and all of the things that are sacrificed each one of the days of that particular festival. And each one, it mentions the, uh, the waving. That's what I thought I remember seeing recently when I was. Oh no, it's it's that. right, right. The the point is the, the point that I'm making is the specific tradition, even designating oh, tradition, that it's yes. it's these exact things that are being used. All right, and mm. that they are waved in particular ways. This is developed by tradition. Uh, even the building of the sukkah, it has to be exact mm-hmm. specifications, which according to rabbinic tradition were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Those are the things where we, we take issue and differ. But the, the larger celebration and some of the customs involved with it, great, wonderful. And, um, and then some of the rabbinic tradition develops. Listen, I'm not saying it's like sinful to do the thing, but to think that God commanded it and that the, this each specific has specific meaning, that I would highly question. As much as understanding the way it would have been originally, just presenting something to the Lord, you know, with a wave, presenting it to him as opposed to this means this and this means that. There's just no scripture to support that. All right, friends, 30 minutes from now, join me on Ask Dr. Brown, Ask Dear Brown on YouTube for exclusive weekly YouTube chats.